Hello, friends. We are just wrapping up our little summer break here at Old Timey Crimey. So before we get back to the normal swing of things, here is one of our favorite episodes from over on the Patreon. This is one of the episodes that our patrons would have gotten every week. You can support us over there at patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey, as well as get some awesome bonus episodes. That's five episodes per month for just $5 a month. And one thing I really love about the episodes that we do over there is that we really delve into some crimes that you may not have heard of or that nobody has heard of because they've sort of gotten obscured by the winds of time. And we dig down deep into the newspaper archives to find out more about them. That to me is very satisfying to find those little nuggets of crime from the past and unearth them. I've got a lot of mixed metaphors going on here, so before I add one more to the pile, here you go with an older episode from over on the Patreon. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. Hey, it's old tiny crimey. I am Christy. I am Amber. And I am going to be telling Amber and you, our lovely patrons, today about a 1933 kidnapping. Hooray! Such a year for kidnapping. It was. It was a good year for kidnapping. It really was. So, I'm going to be telling you all about John K. Otley. Okay. But really the star of the show, we'll get to her, the star of the show in my mind is his wife, who is my queen. Oh, okay. Just wait. So... John Otley was born in 1868 in Columbus, Mississippi, and he had been working his way up through banking since his 30s. Started as an assistant cashier at the American Trust and Banking Company when it opened its doors in 1890, and he got on the advisory board as well. Okay. Now, this was actually in Atlanta. He moved from Columbus, Mississippi to Atlanta, Georgia, And when he first got the job, he had only been there for a little while. But he had letters of recommendations from prominent people back home. Okay. He was from a really good family. And he was called one of the heaviest individual shareholders of the new bank. And the Atlanta Constitution said he would make a valuable and useful citizen in Atlanta. And I'm sure he was. But his wife, who at the time when he first moved to Atlanta, she was his wife of one year... She would show that a woman can be just as valuable and useful, if not more. So, in 1889, he had married Passy Fenton McCabe. The two had actually grown up together in Columbus. Okay. It's kind of like childhood sweethearts. Aww. Passy is everything. Okay? Remember, this is the late 1800s. She continued her education, even after being married, She went to the Industrial Institute and College, and then in 1897, attended the University of Chicago. Oh. She would then go on to get her Doctor of Letters from the University of Georgia in 1926, when she was 58. Wow. Now, a Doctor of Letters is actually higher than a PhD. They can be earned, or they can be honorary. 
But just for instance, other honorary doctors of letters include Mark Twain and Nelson Mandela. Nice. So she's in good company. She was incredibly active in her community, especially with regards to education and underprivileged children. This was her passion. So she was one of the main forces behind the establishment of a school for underprivileged children in Georgia and also wrote columns about education for the Atlanta Constitution. Nice. Way ahead of her time. Super ahead of her time. She was president of the Georgia Women's Club and always supported the idea of women in the workplace. Uh, from, uh, from Jeffrey A. Bean's biographical sketch of her, Mrs. Otley was one of the first women to fight for a co-educational university in Georgia. Otley used chivalry as her weapon in this battle, questioning why the men would give up a seat on the bus, but not in the classroom. Love it. I know, right? I read that and I was like, oh my god, yes. She is my queen. And of course, she was a suffragette. Of course, yeah. And with all that, she still managed to also throw luncheons and dances and all kinds of social events, especially after the family moved into their big country estate, Joyus, on Peachtree Road in 1913. So she's just like a rock star. She really is. She's, she's rocking it everywhere. It's a, she's, she's amazing and I love her. If we can't have a time machine, can we find a way to resurrect people? Right. Because <laughs> she would be the first person I'd resurrect. <laughs> then Betty White. So, Passy and John had three children, two of whom made it to adulthood, and they were John Jr. and Passy. Nice. You get one, I get one. <laughs> exactly. John was active in the Presbyterian Church, and he, he continued his climb through the banking system. In 1896, he was a full cashier vice president in 1906, and president in 1919. Nice. So in 1933, he was president of First National Bank in Atlanta, as well as director of the Central of Georgia Railroad, Southern Bell, Mutual Life Insurance Company of New York, a trustee of the Atlanta YMCA, and he was in the Driving Club, the Athletic Club, the Capital City Club, and the Masons. These are very busy people. Yeah. I'm exhausted just thinking about it. Like, when were they home? Yeah, I, I look at all this and I'm like, no, I, I want to take a nap. <laughs> so, They're go-getters, though. Yeah. He also seemed to be big into breeding hunting dogs. Okay. And they would have kind of like hunting dog competitions. Didn't know that was a thing, but makes sense. Why not? There's weirder competitions. We learned about the ferret competitions. Yeah, yeah. I, uh... Had to attend a ferret show once. I was voluntold to, and that was interesting. Awful. <laughs> uh, I mean, our house used to have a pigeon coop that was for racing pigeons, mm -hmm. and they would have competitions with the racing pigeons. I got to help tear it down with a sledgehammer. Yes, yes, you did. <laughs> I got to use a chainsaw. So, in July of 1933, Otley was 74. He's still working. So he leaves Joyeuse to head into the bank for work one morning, turns out onto from the, the driveway onto his road, and someone flagged him down. So he stopped, thinking the guy needed a ride or something, and the man whipped out a gun and told Otley to get in the back seat. Kidnapping a 74-year-old is a little weird. It gets weird. Oh, good. So this guy, Otley didn't know his name, but did sort of know who he was. He had actually given the guy rides into town before, and the guy had told Otley that he was in charge of one of the fruit stands that Otley allowed to be put up on his property, like on the road. 
it's the depression. So he's yeah. trying to do his best to help, you know, anybody who needs to make a living, help them out there. And their place was so busy that I'm sure with all the parties and luncheons and weddings and everything that they had plenty of traffic yeah. coming in. Unfortunately, there's a mall there now. I was sad that I didn't get to see it on one of my Google Street View trips. So he told Otley that he was involved with the fruit stands, but it's also possible that he made Otley think he was involved with the fruit stands in order to try to implicate the actual people who ran the fruit stands for what was about to happen. But one way or the other, he was sort of familiar to Otley, so Otley was like, sure, and then gun and backseat. Usually there were no guns involved in their interactions. One would think, yeah. There was also a second man involved. Younger than the first guy, he had been hiding, and he hopped in the driver's seat when guy number one had Otley move into the back. So let's talk about these two guys. The older one is William R. Delensky, 29, and the younger is Pryor Bowen, 17. Awfully young, but okay. Pretty young to be involved in a kidnapping. And even Bowen who was committing this crime with Delinsky, didn't know Delinsky's real name. Delinsky had given him a pseudonym, Grover. They then proceeded to drive a roundabout route, and Otley couldn't quite figure out what they were trying to do or where they were trying to go. They drove around for like an hour and a half. Otley said at one point they passed a little truck on the road, and Delinsky shoved the gun into his side. And he said, Otley later said, It was a funny thing that as we passed the truck slowly, I looked into the face of the truck driver and he looked at me and the man beside me. So that made Delinsky kind of paranoid. After that, Delinsky taped his eyes shut. Taped Otley's eyes shut. Obviously not his own. He needs to see for the kidnapping. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. it's important to see who you're kidnapping. (laughs) Yeah. It gets weird, but it doesn't get that weird. So finally they get outside of Atlanta and to a less developed area where there were just pretty much woods. There's a bridge near the Chattahoochee River just north of Suwannee, which is 30 miles north of Atlanta. Okay. At this point, they tell Otley to write a note to Passy, telling her he'd been kidnapped and his life was in danger. And there was also a separate ransom note written by Delinsky himself. Your husband has been kidnapped. We are holding him for $40,000. If you notify the authorities, police, newspapers, or anyone else, he will be killed. Instructions later. Get money immediately. Today, if possible. Do you want your money or your husband? Money in 5, 10, 20, 50 bills. Which shall it be? If anyone asks about him, say he was called out of the city for a few days. This is where I realized that I got this case and our Jake Factor case confused. Because remember we were talking about the ransom notes in that case? Yeah. And I said there was a dash between every single word. Yeah. That was this case. Okay. <laughs> Too many 1933 kidnappings going on I was going to say, because I didn't actually see the notes for the factor case. And so I was just like, okay, I'm going to take your word for it. I just didn't see them. Because I only had like the italicized newspaper report of the notes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'll, I'll edit that out. <laughs> Oopsie. A little glimpse behind the scenes at Christy messing up. <laughs> Because I have too many kidnappings in my head. We had too many kidnappings going on. So the men tied Otley up and sat him down on a log. Delensky told Otley, as long as you keep still and don't say anything, you will not be harmed. I do not want to kill a man, but I know what I am up against, and I am going through with it. He also took Otley's glasses. 
Otley was like, uh, those are like specially made and they were actually platinum frames. And he's like, can you just be really careful with those? Because I need them to see. I do require those. If you want me to write more notes, I'll need those. <laughs> yes. So Delinsky took them and put them in his jacket pocket. So now, for the delivery of the note. Delinsky, his plan was to take Otley's car back to Atlanta and drop the ransom no note at Joyeuse. This would leave Bowen, the younger man, with Otley. Delinsky told Boehm, if he moves, let him have it. Bowen's only weapon is a blackjack, which is sort of like a club. But remember, he's 17 and Otley is 74. And they're 30 miles from Atlanta, so Delinsky had to go 60 miles round trip. He said he'd be back in a few hours and would bring some food and water. And it's July in Atlanta. Yeah, it's, it's hot. hot. Yeah. Zelensky did go to Atlanta. He dropped the note off to a caretaker at Joyeuse. Then he sped off. The caretaker recognized the car and handed the note over to a maid who then contacted the police. Mrs. Otley was out of town. She's a busy lady. She's a busy lady, and this is not super well planned. So, we've got a 17-year-old who has a club, a 74-year-old banker who can't see and is tied up, what do you think happens? Mm, I think the 17-year-old leaves and the uh, banker frees himself. Not quite. Oh, damn. This is one that takes it. It's an unexpected turn, so don't, don't fault yourself. <laughs> don't feel bad. Once Delinsky was gone, Otley turned to Bowen and said, Haven't you gone about far enough with this thing, son? Bowen replies, Yes, sir, I have. And then they sit in silence for about 20 minutes. Then Otley says, well, son, are you ready to go? And Bowen said, yes, sir. Bowen untied Otley and took the tape off his eyes, and then they started walking towards Suwanee, which was the nearest town. Finally, they ran into a few farmers and told them what was up. They found another farmer who actually had a truck loaded everyone into it, and drove four miles to Wilson and Verner's general store in Suwanee, home of the only phone in the whole town. Wow. Mm-hmm. So Otley called Passy, and then called the bank, who then called the police chief and sent him to Suwanee. Passy also set off for home. So they're waiting in the store, and then this. From the newspapers. Nervous, but otherwise all right, Mr. Otley remarked that the elder man, that was Delinsky, had taken the only cash he had with him, $10, to make some phone calls. Bowen, searching his pockets, brought out a little change and bought the banker a soft drink. Aww. I know. So, and then this beautiful bit. They, in, in this newspaper, they called Bowen by his, his first name. Mr. Otley, banker, horse fancier, philanthropist, and prior Bowen, whose belongings consisted of two shirts, one soiled and wrapped in soiled brown paper, sat waiting for the police to arrive and drank soda water, and Pryor paid the bill. It's very sweet. I just love it. The local bailiff comes, but they're still waiting on the Atlanta police to arrive when Bowen sees a candy truck drive up to the store. A guy gets out of the back and runs off. Bowen tries to tell the bailiff that it's Delinsky, but the bailiff doesn't listen and the guy gets away. 
And the bailiff was also like, no, they told me to keep an eye on you. I got to keep an eye on you. You're not tricking me. And the, the bailiff also was like, no, I know the driver. Everything's fine. Nothing suspicious there. They do try to catch that dude, but they're too late. They check a nearby house, and the woman who lives there says that, yes, a man fitting the description of Delinsky had stopped and asked for water. While he was drinking, she asked him if the men had caught the kidnapper. And what were all those cars doing down at the store? She said the man stopped drinking and hurried away. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. The theory was that he was getting the food and water to take back to Bowen and Otley when the woman dropped that on his head and he realized the jig was up. So the cops come, they find out the situation, and their plan is to go to the bridge because Delinsky is supposed to come back there. So the whole gang, the cops, Otley, Bowen, maybe even the farmers, maybe maybe the, the farmers ch- were probably still hanging out. It's become like a picnic. Even the store gives the group some food for lunch. Well, good. Canned goods and crackers. This again from the newspaper. The banker, shucking his coat, stood with one foot on the running board of a car and spread potted meat on a cracker with a penknife. He complained that his glasses were gone, and Bowen gave him his own glasses, but they did not fit. Aww. I know. Bowen's actually a sweet kid. He really is. Mr. Otley said that he had also lost his pipe in the shuffle, and he was forced to bum cigarettes from the officer until an Atlanta newspaper man showed up with a cigar, which greatly pleased the banker. He's, he's being a touch cranky, but it's been a day. And he's also 74. I feel like at 74, you're allowed to be cranky. Most certainly. Especially, especially after kidnapping. Yes, yes. So his son, John Jr., who was a former newspaper man himself and was now an advertising executive, was at Sea Island, Georgia. And he, as soon as he heard about the kidnapping, flew back and uh, got to the attempted ambush around 6 p.m. So, Oh, nice. Yeah. So now it's a family affair. Mm-hmm. They hang out there all afternoon and into the early evening, but obviously Delinsky does not show up. So they head back to Atlanta, and Otley and Passy got home almost at the same time, which is cute. That is kind of cute. Otley's doctor checked him out and said that aside from extreme fatigue, he was fit as a fiddle. His main complaint seemed to be that he wanted his glasses. Yeah. So, Bowen's story. He tells his whole story to the newspaper. He is the son of a farmer, and of course it's the Depression. Farmer's not doing so great. He was born and raised in Livonia, only 100 miles from Atlanta. He'd recently gotten into a little bit of trouble back home with the alleged breaking into a local store, but the case was dismissed in municipal court. He was trying to do some work, pick up some work in the Livonia, but it wasn't enough to help his family, so he hit the road. He said he was going to Chicago in search of work, but it was said that he had some temporary work waiting in Atlanta. Quote, I came to Atlanta Tuesday. I am in the 10th grade and I wanted a job. I went to the Salvation Army and there I met a man who said his name was Grover. He was about 25 years old. He had black wavy hair and when he walked, he swung his shoulders from side to side. He wore a light suit. I spent July 4th with him at Piedmont Park. He asked me if I wanted to work and make some money and I said yes. That's why I came here. Grover said, well, I've got a plan that will get you 10K easy. I asked him what it was, and he said it was kidnapping a rich man. I said, nothing doing. He mentioned it again, and I asked him to tell me what the deal was. Grover said he had been working on the thing for three months and had it all figured out. He said he had a bundle with the necessary tape, 
rope, and other tools. He told me all I had to do was drive the car and stay with the man while he went back and saw to getting the money. I figured if that was all I had to do, I would go along and let the man go free as soon as I could. If he was a very rich man, he would be my friend. Aww. I know. Bowen asked that his mother be told that he hadn't done anything wrong, and the chief of police said, I'll call her myself and tell her you are all right and not to worry. Aww. So Otley said he was going to leave Bowen's fate in the hands of the law, but he was grateful for everything Bowen had done for him. Yeah, because he let you go. Yeah. And and then bought you a soda. And even tried to give you his glasses. (laughs) So... Bowen was surprised when he was indicted. What did they indict me for, he said. I helped Mr. Otley get away. Meanwhile, Delinsky had registered at a dormitory as Grover Collins of Utah with his occupation listed as photographer. So that's who they're looking for at first. They're looking for Grover Collins. Although he had bragged that if he needed to escape, he'd do it dressed as a woman. We got a lot of cross-dressing these past few uh, episodes. Yeah, right? Otley's friends have put up a $2,500 reward at at first. That's a little over $50,000 today. Eventually, it went to $3,300. So over $64,000 in today's money. It takes about nine days, but they finally, finally figure out Delinsky's real name. Delinsky. What happened was he had rented a room... And when he left, he left his stuff. So the landlady went through it and identified him, then matched him to a description of the kidnapper. He was a former merchant marine and stationary salesman with a record of larceny and abandonment charges in New York City. There you go. So with all this new information, they find out that his parents live in Miami. So they set up a little surveillance there. Delensky's mom went to Fort Lauderdale one night to send out a package. 30 miles one way to mail something out? That's a little weird. Unless it's a head in a box. Yeah. And this package is going to San Antonio. So the police head out with John Jr. tagging along. They drive all night to Nashville. I love this, though. Can Can I just, like, interject here? I wish this could still happen today where, like, You could be involved in the police stakeouts and stuff. Like, hey, this affects me. I'm coming with you. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's kind of fun. (laughs) It's very exciting. They drive all night to Nashville, and then they fly to San Antonio. And exactly one month to the day after the kidnapping, they arrest William Delensky, whose mother had sent him some money and clothes under an assumed name because he said he was going to Mexico with an old prospector. So she didn't know anything about any of this? She kind of did. He, he, he seemed to try to hide it, but she was, she was writing him letters saying, just turn yourself in. Just, you know. It, okay, so she did know. Okay. Yeah, just like trust in God and stuff like that, you know. Jesus, take the wheel. <laughs> exactly. Delensky goes to trial. His story is kind of weird, very weak in my opinion. He wasn't kidnapping for ransom. He was just trying to get Otley out of the way for four or five hours while he made some sort of deal. 
I feel like that deal was ransom. Yeah, it was ransom. <laughs> very, very weak. Well, and also, he had a stupid plan. So why kidnap somebody, go away from where you want the note, and then go back to del- just leave the note as you take the man? And he had also uh, intentionally left Otley's car in Atlanta, fearing that once word got out, people would be on the lookout for that car. So leave the note in the car. That would be an idea, yeah. Write it ahead of time. Leave it on the steering wheel. Well, you need Otley's note. I mean, I guess the car itself could be proof that Otley is kidnapped, but Otley's own handwriting and signing the note and everything could also be handy for that. But it is very strange. Yeah. That they just, and they just go out in the middle of nowhere. They don't go to like a, you know, a rented room or, you know, a, an also, abandoned shack. Like, if you just picked up the 17-year-old, why wouldn't you have the 17-year-old go to deliver the note? Because that way, if they see his face, what do you care? Like, yeah, I mean, that's true. But then this whole plan was just flawed. Yeah, it's very flawed. But the 17-year-old, can you trust him? I mean, look at what happened. Would you trust him more with the note or with the, the, the like the kidnapped? Yeah, it feels like it's a, it's a loser plan either way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Write the note ahead of time. Maybe like, you know, get Otley in the car, drive him around for 10 minutes, have him write a note. And then drop all that stuff at the house and speed off with Otley. Yeah. Doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So how long do you think the deliberation was for William Delinsky? Mm, four minutes. One hour, 25. Oh, that's an awfully long time. He was given 21 to 28 years. And a 42-year term was the highest he could have gotten. Because remember, the kidnapping thing, pretty serious. Yeah. Delensky would try to escape and failed when corrections officers found the multiple guns he'd stashed in his cell. Wow. He had them, like, hidden in walls and sewn into the mattress. It How was... did he get so many guns? Exactly. That's the thing. They tried to find out by putting him in the stocks. They had stocks in 1933. Did you know that? I did not. At least in the <laughs> prisons they did. So when... Uh, he wouldn't tell them where he'd gotten the pistols, and they let him out, and then proceeded to attempt suicide. Did not succeed. He did successfully escape in 1937. It must have been recaptured. It didn't make big news, but he was back in prison. And in 1949, he was let out of prison and would go on to commit burglary in Florida, where he stole a pistol, watch, jewelry, and sewing machine. Why not? Sew yourself up some clothes for your next escape. A nice pretty dress. Did our banker ever get his glasses back? I think he had to. No, he did not. Um, The pipe was in the car when they found it. So he did get his pipe back. His glasses were still in Delinsky's pocket. So I don't believe he got, especially by the time they got Delinsky back, it had been a month. He must have had to have new ones made or used an old set or something like that. Yeah. Bowen had his trial the very day after Delinsky's. His story was what we said. He went into this whole kidnapping thing with the goal of helping Otley, saving the rich man, and becoming his friend. There's a picture in the paper that shows him sitting with his whole family, his mom, his sisters, even a baby niece, just right in the front row of the courtroom. Um, Very sadly, his father died by suicide two days after uh, Bowen was picked up for the kidnapping. So this whole family is really going through it. 
The jury at first was deadlocked six to six, so half and half, but they managed to come to an agreement. Do you think they found him guilty or not guilty? I hope not guilty. Well, they did find him guilty, but they decided to treat the crime as a misdemeanor. He got one year on the chain gang, but the judge promised that probation would come soon with good behavior, and sure enough, he only served six weeks of his sentence before he was given probation. Good. And the total reward for capturing Delinsky was 3300 like I said, when all was said and done. Bowen got 300 of it. Oh, That's about $6,500 today. The rest was evenly split between the landlady, who had searched the room, as well as the San Antonio military policeman who actually performed the arrest, and a post office clerk in Miami who helped them out with figuring out what uh, Delinsky's mom was up to. Prior Bowen did go on to graduate with honors from high school in Livonia. And then we have to sigh. Oh. Sometimes I really just want to, like, lie. Just lie and say And it. everybody lived happily ever after. Exactly. Because you get to the end of a case like this, and there's been so many, like, feel-good moments. And then you have to say that in 1937... He was sentenced to three years in Florida State Prison after an attempted holdup of a liquor dealer that ended with Bowen being shot in the stomach. He appears to have survived it to go to prison, and after that he just disappears from the record altogether. One major problem with that was you would think that Pryor Bowen, Pryor with a Y, would be an easy name to hunt down. Pryor was his middle name. His first name was James. Oh. And after all the kidnapping stuff, he started going by James Bowen. That's a lot harder to track down. It is very weird that both Bowen and Delinsky ended up in Florida at some point committing crimes. So, Passy died in 1940 at age 72. Otley was said to be kind of paranoid after this incident and did carry a small gun with him everywhere he went. He remarried in 41, only one year after Patsy died. Um, disrespectful. I'm sorry, but... <laughs> she and he was, would have been in his 80s. Well, no, he was... Uh, when he passed, it was in 1945, and he was 76. He was born in 68. 1868, sorry. <laughs> so, 32 years to... And then 47. I'm just really confused by all of this. Because I thought he was 74 when he was kidnapped. Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay, so, 1933, he was born in... Oh, you know what? There are some discrepancies in his age. Oh, okay. There was one... Uh, actually, somewhere it said he was born in 1858. But everywhere else I saw it was 1868. So that might be where that comes from. So, 1868, uh, 32, and 33. So he was 64, 65. When he was kidnapped. Yeah. Okay, so. and then he was in his 70s when Passy died, and then the next year he got remarried. But still, like... That well, way. But, you know, at the same time, they're like, it's it's interesting, because he, he very well could have been 74, and then when he got remarried, he could have been 84. But... Depending on which... It, that's the case. It's pretty gross... <laughs> It's gross either way. No, it's it's gross, the, the, the age discrepancy, because Passy was definitely born in 1868. So when he was 20, she was 10. 
And that kind of childhood romance, I cannot get on board with. Oh, because they got married when he was 20. They got married when he was in his late 20s. Well, if she was 20 and he was 30, like, that's not as... Yeah, as... I know. But there were accounts that said they grew up together, so I figured... But... Yeah, he babysat. Um... <laughs> so, yeah, it's definitely... Um, it's just one of those things where, you know, you, you, a number gets transposed or, you know, like somebody just puts the wrong information up and it, it perpetuates through the historical record. <laughs> Love it when that happens. <laughs> yeah, isn't that fun? I'm going to keep all this in because it's interesting discussion. But, like, it's fine. He was 64 during the kidnapping and then uh, 74 when he uh, got remarried. A year after Passy died, disrespectful prick. <laughs> I mean, uh, there's a, there is a thing where men do remarry more quickly after. So, like, I understand it more when kids are young. And, and I know that sounds really weird. But, like, when kids are young, a, a lot of men, especially back then, needed somebody in the home to help take care of the kids in the house. Mm-hmm. Especially during this time. And still now today, because, sorry, dudes, um, some of y'all just need help. <laughs> and... Um, like, I get it more then, and I, maybe it's because I'm a woman. Like, I feel like if I'm old and my husband dies, I'm just going to enjoy the silence. <laughs> but um, I, maybe loneliness isn't for everyone. Like, I look forward to it. Yeah, he had been with Passy for over 40 years. Pretty much his whole life. And yeah. probably being lonely just wasn't for him. Yeah, but I just don't... It's it's mainly that I don't think anybody can re- replace Passy. Because she is my queen. Nobody could replace Passy. But she was also a very busy lady. She was, yeah. Yeah. They did seem to have a pretty good marriage. And was still, like, loving and everything. But, yeah. I love Passy. I think it's the takeaway from all this. You know what? Maybe Passy is a goddess. Passy is a goddess. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what it comes down to. Passy's a goddess. Why can you give up a seat on the bus but not in the classroom? Oh, clever as hell, that woman. <laughs> All right. That has been our tiny. I should probably give my sources. So my sources for this were Thornton Kennedy in the Marietta Daily Journal, Find a Grave, Jeffrey A. Bean in Mainstream Suffragists. And from newspapers.com, the Chicago Tribune, and the Atlanta Constitution. So that was awesome. Thank you. Thank you. That was, yeah, I was looking forward to that one because there is that twist of the kid actually, like, helps. Yeah, a 17-year-old kidnapper, like, all right, he's gone. You ready to get out of here? <laughs> <laughs> and there was another very sweet moment I didn't I didn't capture, but uh, Otley later recounted that there had been a moment when they'd been, like, traipsing through the woods and he had to climb over a log and uh, so Bowen helped him and took his hand. And Otley had kind of felt like, maybe I can get this young boy's sympathy. And so he squeezed the boy's hand. And Bowen squeezed back. Aww. And that was what kind of led him to think, okay, I think I can get out of this. If it's just me and him. <laughs> but if that other asshole is involved, I'm screwed. <laughs> so, yeah, some stuff that doesn't make it in, but... Yeah, that is the story of the John K. Otley kidnapping and uh, kind of happy endings, but sort of not also. So, yeah. But. Not all happy. Some happy. But Passy, we got to meet Passy, so it was all worth it. We got to meet Passy and uh, his son, the kid, the kidnapped victim's son, got to go on some stakeouts and, and do some crime fighting, which <laughs> was probably really cool. Right. Definitely a change of pace from being an advertising executive. Yeah. <laughs> so. like, I'm going to come with you. We'll, we'll do this. 
I'm going to hop in the back seat. It's going to be a ride along. Oh my God. I wish we could still do that. I really do. <laughs> I really, really wish we could still do that. <laughs> All right. Patrons, thank you for everything you do. We really appreciate your support as always. And we will see you later. So uh, don't kidnap anyone. There. I've said it. Or if you do, let them go. There you go. All right. Bye.